0: Hello, this is Dan Kilbride. I'm the host of New Books in American Studies, and I'm also the chair of the history department at John Carroll University outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And here at New Books in American Studies, we take books in any field regarding American literature, history, popular science, technology, you name it, but it tends to be history on this show. And we interview the author for about an hour. So today we are joined by Michael O'Brien who's Professor of American Intellectual History at Jesus College in Cambridge University. And we're talking to him about his book, The Letters of C. Van Woodward, published by Yale University Press in 2013. This is a first for new books in American studies. We've only dealt with uh, monographs in the past on this show, and this is the first time we're dealing with primary sources. But this is an interview I'm very excited to do. Uh, I met C. Van Woodward once. I, uh, my dissertation advisor was one of his students, and uh, I'm a big fan of his writing and his scholarship. Uh, so, this is an interview I've really look- been looking forward to. So, Michael O'Brien, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thank you. Uh, would you tell everybody about yourself, please? Well, uh,
1: I'm a British scholar uh, born in a um, long time ago, 1948, um, in Devon in, in the <laughs> West Country and educated um, at Cambridge in the late 60s. I did an MA at Vanderbilt in Nashville for a couple of years, came back here um, to Cambridge to do my PhD, and then spent 20 more years in America, um, uh, postdoc at the University of Michigan. I taught at the University of Arkansas in the early 80s. I taught at Miami of Ohio for a good number of years um, until I came back to Cambridge in 2002. So Mm -hmm. um, I've mostly written... Uh, American intellectual history and most of my career until fairly recently was was concerned with Southern intellectual history first in the 20th century and then um, I wrote a lot about the The intellectual culture of the south before the civil war in recent years i've done a bit with the adams family of um, massachusetts and one thing and another
0: now i was in the audience when you accepted an award for conjectures of order and at that point you said you were through with southern history but (laughs) here you are again are you like michael corleone you just keep getting dragged back uh into uh something you're trying to get out of. well
1: um i do kept keep being dragged back. It's true. Um, although, actually, I, I only semi-regard this as a venture in Southern history. He was a, an American historian. I mean, he was chiefly a Southern historian, of course, but um, uh, but he did write about some things which were not uh, to do with the South, and and um, although he was a Southerner and grew up there, um, he spent most of his adult, or his later years, in New England, so he's very much an American figure. So I, I see if it more of a venture in American intellectual history than with with southern implications than than just a venture in southern history
0: all right, I think that 's pretty thin, but i 'm going to let it go um, <laughs> as I mentioned in my intro uh, i once uh a couple times met C Van Woodward, I was very excited. I actually told my family and friends I met C Van Woodward, and their response was "Who is c van Woodward? <laughs> so um, which was depressing uh, and I, I want to talk about that a little bit later but could you in, in your introduction to this to this book, you give a very uh tight, concise uh, explanation for why Woodward is historically important that is, can you just explain what was Southern history, especially the, the the history of the late 19th century which he specialized in, what was it like before he uh, came onto the scene and what did he do to change that perception and uh, what was his greatest accomplishment as a historian?
1: Well, before he came along, the the history, of this, the writing of the history of the American South was really um, a firstly preoccupied with the colonial period. Um, it usually spent a lot of time talking about Virginia and the American Revolution and Washington and Jefferson and so forth. Um, and then it tended to skate rather rapidly over the antebellum period. Uh, and get to the civil War, and then they would say, "Oh dear, how unfortunate it all was <laughs> and um, and how still more unfortunate it was radical reconstruction and then for the period afterwards it um, they tended to write books which were very celebratory of the New South and it was all going swimmingly. Uh, there was a few problems with um, difficult farmers and difficult black people <laughs> and so on, but uh, but on the whole it was going well, um, and we should all feel reasonably pleased with ourselves. And that the South, as it became more urban and more industrial and so forth, um, would eventually um, match Massachusetts and New York and so on.
0: Um, Though, as you point out, with better manners and more sensible racial relations, Indeed, yes. Um,
1: Now, Woodward thought almost all of this was nonsense. Um, He wasn't terribly interested in the colonial period. Um, And in fact, for most of his career, he was not that interested in the antebellum period, although he dabbled a bit. Um, But he was terribly interested in in the question of the New South and where it came from. And he was a racial liberal, and he was very – unhappy about segregation and, and racial oppression and and also about uh, rural poverty, tenant farmers, sharecroppers, um, and was a great fan of the populists and the populist challenge of the late 19th century. So he, he kind of turns Southern history on its head, really, um, by identifying the characteristics of the regime that emerges out of Reconstruction and, and – um, the period of the late 19th century and he does see the period from the 1870s through to the end of the 1890s as a sort of period of contestation and, and difficulty where it all begins to bed down in his view not very happily um, that a kind of deal is struck between elite white southerners and northern industrialists basically to squash uh, poor <laughs> white farmers and, and blacks and um, and that that's the regime which um, persisted into his childhood he was born in 1908 in Arkansas and into his early manhood when he was living in um, Arkansas and then Georgia um, and then um, North Carolina um, and latterly Florida um, so he challenged the status quo and and it was very it was very clear and I mean he was politically engaged as a scholar and he right. he wanted um, this Regime to be gotten rid of, and and work to to achieve that.
0: Uh, the the interpretation that you just laid out was uh, most famously articulated in his book, The Origins of the New South. Mm-hmm. Um, can, can you explain, as you mentioned, the editors of that series in which that book appeared? were not uh, did not share Woodward's view of of, of Southern history. No, they didn't. Um, why why did they pick him? Well, it's that not question?
1: utterly clear. Um, they had asked um, someone else to do it uh, first. Um, it should be said that this this series, of, which indeed still exists and it indeed is still not finished, um, but was set up by a fund um, out of the University of Texas. Um, in the 30s, and and the the volumes ran. There were a bunch of volumes that ran from the colonial period onwards. Um, some pretty good, some pretty bad. Um, and this was, you know, the last volume, and I think in a way the one they were least interested in or engaged with, um, <laughs> because it wasn't. I mean they saw the heart and soul of the history of the South as the revolution mm-hmm. and the colonial period and then the civil war and, and the, the bit that followed was was not such a big deal for them. But they'd asked um, a scholar at the University of North Carolina at called Benjamin Kendrick um, to do it and he agreed to do it but then he kind of backed out and changed his mind as often happens with these series and they were kind of casting around and um, – Kendrick and a few others suggested Woodward because he'd just published his biography of Tom Watson, which had been a great success, mm-hmm. critical success. Um, and he, to be fair, he although if you read the book with any sensitivity, you can see his political commitments, but um, he'd not been that public a radical, really, unless you were really paying attention. Um, mm-hmm. So they offered it to him um, – and he said yes, uh, but I, I'm, I'm sure they had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it turned out fine for them in the sense that the book was a great success eventually. Right. Um, but I'm sure many of them were uh, not happy um, <laughs> with what they eventually got. But it, it took a long time for them to get it. I mean, he signed right, up for right. the book in whatever, 1940, and he, they don't get it till 1951, 52. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Well, this is a book of letters. Um, so just let me ask you a, a fundamental question. Uh, what makes a good letter? I mean, why is Woodward uh, a, a letter writer whose letters deserve to be read?
1: Well, there are various components that can go into a good letter or a body of letters. Um, some are, say, you know, who you're writing to or I mean, who you are. Um Obviously, there are some people whose letters get published who um, are – their letters are published even though they may not be great letter writers because they happen right. to be very important people, um, Charles Darwin or mm-hmm. or whoever. Um, there are some people who are not terribly important but are brilliant at it. I mean the most famous example uh, is Madame de Savigny, the great um, mm-hmm. late 17th century French um, letter writer who's a minor aristocrat, otherwise not terribly interesting. Um, and then um, there are some people who are great both in their intellectual or whatever political comments who have also to be wonderful letter writers there aren't many of those um, I mean in the ancient world Cicero is one in, in the 18th century Voltaire um, and then there are people who are reasonably important and if they write good letters they get published and, and then if they're don't write good letters, they don't get <laughs> And Woodward is, is, is sort of that case, really. Um, so what makes a good letter? Well, it's sometimes it's who it's written to. You know, um, if you're writing a letter to someone important, Thomas Jefferson, or, I don't know, F. Scott Fitzgerald or something, then people might care. Uh, it can be good for all kinds of reasons. I mean, it can be good gossip, uh, which people like mm-hmm. to read. Um, it can be stylish. Um, it and usually uh, editions of letters are worthwhile because they tell you something about the person, either the person written to or the person writing, which you might not otherwise know, which which fill out a biography or might – I mean if it's a novelist, say, it might it might be a letter to a publisher or an editor or something which would tell you something about the, the genesis mm-hmm. of a book or, or whatever it may be. Um so there's all kinds of reasons why letters i mean there's no single template i wouldn't have thought um, for a mm-hmm. letter
0: one of the most surprising things I read in these letters was uh, woodward's recommendation to somebody that uh they destroy some personal correspondence yeah. were you were you surprised or m- maybe even horrified to to read that I was, I was. surprised actually
1: um because it was very um, – I went – obviously went through his, all his papers at, at Yale um, in the Sterling Library. He gave mm-hmm. his papers to you. Indeed, he gave all his literary copyright to Yale. Um Although, there, of course, there were letters from him in other people's collections in other archives. Uh, but the bulk of them are there. Unfortunately, he kept carbons of almost all of his correspondence from the, yeah. from the mid-30s onwards. So that makes one's task a lot um, simpler. But um, it was very clear if you go through the papers indeed, if even, you even look through the inventory of it that um, there were very few what one might regard as personal letters. Um, there were two letters to three letters to his wife, although i 'm sure there were hundreds because um, he was often out of town and travelling mm-hmm. and so on. Um, there are a few letters to his son um, there are a handful of letters to his uh, – well, there's one letter to his father. There's nothing from his parents um, or, or much in the way of relatives. Uh, he had a sister uh, who lived very far away and I would imagine they might have corresponded, although I don't know that. Um, and there's none of that. Uh, and it's very clear that he he destroyed it. Um, um he was a very private reserved man and he just as he says in this letter that you mentioned um
0: um
1: he just thinks you know there's no nobody's damn business uh his private life <laughs> um and the letter is to a, a woman who writes to him who's a, who's a- describes herself as a friend of um, George Pearson who was a historian at Yale um, In fact, the chairman of the department when Woodward was hired there and she writes to Woodward and says well because Woodward was a a good friend of Pearson uh, writes to him and says well I've got these private letters what do I do with them, what do I do with them and um, he says burn them (laughs) or if you can't bring yourself to burn them tell your lawyer to burn them when you die Um, and then launches into this little explanation of why he basically thinks that um, it's none of the world's business, yeah, I think he thought you know that um, there are too many people interested in prurient details and so sure. and so on and sure. um uh, now whether he had anything in particular to hide, I have no idea um but um probably not although possibly, but who knows, but um he just um he thought. The world had a right to be interested in him as a scholar and a historian and a teacher and so on, and all of that is meticulously preserved. But the other stuff is 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 not our business, and so we don't know about it um, unless, of course, you could find out more by oral history and so on. Sure, but mm-hmm. that's his biographer's problem, not mine.
0: Yeah, and which which that's what surprised me because I I would think that as a historian Woodward would have a a consciousness that those. Issues might be of interest to a biographer yes, or and
1: he was a little inconsistent he um, he did for example, the um, John Roper, who in fact wrote a biography of Woodward, with which Woodward rather differently cooperated. Um, uh, but Roper had earlier written a biography of Ulrich Phillips, the um, the historian of slavery, southern historian of slavery, who's in a generation or so before Woodward. And Woodward writes to him and says, I'm glad to see that you talk about um, Phillips' private life and that you, know, that you recognize that historians have private lives too. So um, it was not that he didn't think it was legitimate. He just didn't want anyone to do it to him. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um. But there are uh- – uh, these these letters do offer uh, very strong glimpses into Woodward's personality. Yes. Uh, they're 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 very professional. I, mean, I I don't know if it's fair to say most of these letters, but very many of them uh, regard his career as an historian, his career as a uh, an official in various historical organizations, as somebody who's reading manuscripts either privately or or because the press asked them to. Yeah. Uh, what are the clearest uh, aspects of his personality that you think emerged from these letters?
1: Well, I think the letters have two phases. The the ones written when he's much younger are, are different. Um, the ones uh, we have, the earliest letter is is from um, the, their late twenties, uh, but they pick up in a serious way in, in about nineteen thirty. And the early letters are written to uh, basically friends, um, especially a man called Glenn Rainey, who was his um, friend and contemporary at Emory University in the late 20s. And um, they wrote to each other all the time, um, hang out with one another. Um, um, Rainey was a poet and and aspirate historian and ended up in the English faculty at Georgia Tech uh, eventually there are some letters to a um a lover um, a divorced woman that woodward um, had an affair with in in the mid thirties um, um and then there are letters to sundry other people friends and these these are very much the letters of a of a young man making his way in the world um talking about his affairs his feelings his reading he reads proust he he goes to the soviet union um, to make a visit, uh, he talks about that. Um, he talks. He goes to graduate school. He talks about his experiences. So there, these are much more sort of um, candid, open, um, um, a little mannered, but but mostly conscious And then after, and then there's a bit of a silence during the war when he's in the navy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they pick up again when he he gets a job at Johns Hopkins in in 1946. And at that point, he's he's um, uh, and I should say that when he's younger, he's not at all committed to becoming a historian. He, no, that's right. Yeah, he, um, he's interested in in lots of other possibilities: journalism. Um, Uh, political activism. Um, He really doesn't know what he wants to do. And he kind of falls into being a historian um, and then settles for it as the most plausible way to live and then sort of commits himself to it um, in a pretty wholehearted kind of way. So the later letters are much more as you say, professional. All the aspects of being a professional historian the writing, the publishing, the teaching, the grant getting the um, professional organizations historical groups and this and that um, and the correspondence is much less or, or rather the friends with whom he is corresponding are friends because they are also historians or um, or other um, intellectuals he's he's friendly with David Reisman the great um, sociologist um, sundry other people and um, um, so these letters show you you know how this world works and, and so they're letters about um, people who write manuscripts and ask them to comment on them or um, people who are responding to his publishing some review he may have published or some book he may have published or whatever um, and I mean and they're personal in the sense that um, um they're engaged with the person he's corresponding with and he cares about what they're doing and he's commenting on it or they, he's responding to what they think about him. Um, and sometimes there are more personal things about things going on in his life or so on. Um,
0: um,
1: there are a few more personal – things. I mean his son dies of cancer when he's very young mm-hmm. and there, there are a few letters in which he says something about that. Um but not um, but generally speaking they're not they 're not intimate uh, but i mean his his pattern of friendships, unlike when he 's very young, is as it were all tied up with his professional life his The, the people he 's dealing with are his friends, Richard Hofstadter, to whom he was very close, mm-hmm. the great mm-hmm. historian at columbia um, they were engaged with each other professionally in the sense that um uh, they both were editors. They were editing together the Oxford history of the United States, multi-volume history before Hofstadter died of um, leukemia in the late 60s. Uh, but, you know, they used to rent places on Cape Cod and hang out and go out to dinner and, and um, so on.
0: But they were so different as, as historians. I mean, uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Woodward was kind of a – Kind of a conference junkie, he was traveling all the time. He was involved in uh, historical organizations of all sorts. Where Hofstadter had very little time for that. He, no. he had no interest in the kind of bureaucratic uh, aspects of the profession at all.
1: No, he didn't. He he just sort of stayed at home in Manhattan and read his books. And I mean, he would occasionally venture out, but not very often. Um, and he had grave misgivings. I mean, Hofstadter basically saw himself as reaching a popular audience. Mm-hmm. Um whereas Woodward, although he was very interested in the popular audience and and not infrequently did reach it, although um not so much Origins of the New South, but the Tom Watson book sold pretty well. Um uh, but the book that of his that sold enormously millions of copies was was a book called The Strange Career of Jim Crow, which was a series of lectures he gave at the University of Virginia in the mid fifties, um, which is a, a interpretation and a narrative about the the emergence of the segregation system, um, and of course it was. Significant because it, this is precisely the moment that segregation is unraveling, so people are trying to understand what it is that they're dealing with, and Woodward is the person who gives them the most – then thought to be the most cogent. And it, it was a book that um, was successful not just because every other professor adopted it for courses, but, um, <laughs> but because um, it reached a popular audience, both black and white.
0: Yeah you observed that woodward's career uh, took some interesting twists and turns as you said he only entered the historical pres- profession very hesitantly and amb- ambivalently uh-huh. and then its his career just took off with the origins of the new south uh but at a certain point he really stopped writing original research even though he uh he signed on to write uh he had contracts For any number of books uh, that just never went anywhere. Why do you think that he just really stopped doing primary research and really focused on reviewing manuscripts, reviewing books?
1: Um, Well, um, there are several ways of explaining that. The the one, the the interpretation I offer is that actually he was never that interested in original research. Um, I mean, (laughs) he... um, he gets into history because he he um, he's interested in in the political system in the, in the South in the 1930s mostly because he doesn't like it. Um, and He has a little idea for a book um, about Southern demagogues, um, and one of these Southern demagogues is Tom Watson, the the Southern populist leader. Um, so he um, decides, oh well, no, I'm going to. Maybe I'll just write about Tom Watson. Um, and um, he happens to strike up a good relationship with, with various members. Of Wood- Watson is dead at this point. Members of Wood- Wood- and Watson's family, especially his granddaughter, who gave him access to this rich body of Watson papers. Um, so he writes this biography. And along the way, he because he's at this point, he's actually, when he starts to get – he's unemployed. I mean it's the, the Depression uh, – mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, he has a few odds and jobs, odd, odds and ends of jobs with the with some new deal agencies. But uh, but he wants to write this book, and it's put. And he has various friends at Chapel Hill um, who basically arrange for him to have a fellowship. So he he does a PhD because it helps him pay his way while he's he's not terribly interested in having a PhD, but he, he just sort of gets it because it, it's it's convenient um, for him. And so he writes this book on Tom um, Watson. Now, for that, you know, he did a lot of research, but it was pretty convenient. I mean, it was basically all on his doorstep um, in Chapel Hill. And um, and then he um, is not sure what to do next. He he has a plan to write a biography of Eugene Jeb Debs, the great um, socialist leader. Uh, and indeed, goes to Indiana to talk to Deb's family about, but they don't want to know because he's a Southerner and they think he's, he's uh, <laughs> deeply suspicious. So that doesn't work out. And then he gets offered this um, um, volume in the history of the South, and he takes it because he knows this is a great opportunity um, to write it because no one had written a serious book about that period. So I mean, it was a it was a great um, a great opportunity. Um. But And he has to do kind of manuscript research because there hasn't been a body of monographs to synthesize at this point. So he sort of has to do the spade work himself, and he does that pretty conscientiously during before he the war, before he gets in the navy, and then in the late forties when he gets out again. Um, But he never liked it, Um, (laughs) uh, and you know you can understand some people do, some people don't, some. I mm-hmm. like it enormously, mm-hmm. but um, some people find it a bit of a grind going off and sitting in hotels and, <laughs> and going off to the archive <laughs> and so on, and, and um, eating bad food in in, um, in cheap diners, but um,
0: You make it sound so uh, romantic? romantic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but then he finishes his book, and um, it's a great success. It wins the Bancroft Prize and so on, Um and um, and then he writes the just career of Jim Crow, which is not a, a research-based book at all. In fact, it's right, as right. some people have pointed out, it's based on in fact scandalously few sources. And he wrote <laughs> it terribly fast. I mean, he, he would he had asked he had been asked to give these lectures at the University of Virginia, and I mean, sort of three months before, he basically has no idea what he's going to talk about. Uh, so he does it on the hoof. Really, does it brilliantly, but it's pretty much on the hoof. Um, now, because he's Um, successful and noticed. He, you know, as people of this kind are, they get asked to do stuff um, by um, publishers, by especially Mm -hmm. newspapers. He starts reviewing for the New York Times and and various, um, and then in the 60s becomes a great regular contributor to the New York Review books, which becomes the preeminent, Journal of Opinion, I think, for many years. I'm not sure it still is, but certainly for a long time it was. Um, so there's lots of demands placed on him. Plus he goes to Yale. He has lots of students, and, and, and that's a sort of more of a bully pulpit as well. So the fact that he never really fancied original <laughs> research in the first place, but that he had always been terribly interested in, in – um, as it were, being a public intellectual to use a not very satisfactory phrase. I mean, he had -hmm. had published things in newspapers when he was still a student in Atlanta and he was always interested in doing things for the New Republic and so on in the 30s. So when suddenly all of this is available to him, that's what he does because that's what he enjoys um, and what he feels he's good at. And the 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 degree of his commitment to the sort of grind of of historical research and the sustained monograph or or whatever um, he just let that slide really and um, mm. I think he thought I mean he actually never talks about it at least that nothing that I've ever seen in his papers or um, in letters or anything. And I knew him in his later years, and he he certainly never talked about it to me. Um, so there's no exp- – I mean the main thing that he failed to do is he signed up to write a book on reconstruction in the 60s. And at least to the late 60s, he was still sort of poking around with it. But um, it just quietly fades away, and he never mentions it again.
0: I don't know how he would have done it, uh, given all his other commitments. Uh, commitments well, you do as it you said, by
1: giving up some of those other commitments, and that was yeah. what he was not willing to do, really.
0: Yeah, he seemed to enjoy uh, many of those things. Uh, uh, one of the things that you describe in the book, uh, and many of the letters deal with this, is uh, – as his role of, of – as what you call as a literary midwife, as somebody who not only reviewed many, many books, but reviewed many manuscripts. Yeah. Uh, not only those he was asked to review by a publisher, but just people coming to him and saying, you know, would you read this for yes. me? Uh, and I, I think you would mention this uh, or, or give your opinion about this. He's sort of a model of, of – of, uh, as somebody uh, who saw himself as – not so much a critic, but as somebody who was responsible for giving constructive criticism. And some of his criticism is pretty sharp and severe. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the letters is to, I think, John Hope Franklin, mm-hmm. who was writing uh, a report, maybe it was, on, uh, on civil rights. Yes, And Franklin really wrote exclusively about African-Americans. Right. And Woodward said, look, if you're going to do this, you either got to change the title yep. <laughs> to, or you got to go back to the drawing board. Um, can, can you just talk about uh, Woodward's role as, as you say, a literary midwife?
1: Well, it it um, begins, I think, pretty much in the 50s um, when he's at Hopkins. Um, and he – you must remember that he starts life um, – this is not a satisfactory word but I'll use it anyway as a sort of provincial I mean he's from Arkansas he, he grows up in Georgia most Arkansas in Georgia goes to local southern universities Emory which wasn't much of a place really in the 20s to be frank um, uh, University of North Carolina which is better I mean it's certainly arguably the best southern university in the 30s 20s and 30s um, but um, was not without its provincialisms, and and although he did spend a year in New York in the, in, in the early thirties, he did an MA at Columbia briefly, but he he didn't stay. I mean, he liked New York, but he didn't much take to Columbia. Um, so, but he travels. He he goes to Europe several times. He goes to the Soviet Union, for example, um, and he's interested in wider horizons. But he's not a you know. A, a, worldly wise or or metropolitan man Um, but when he goes to Hopkins um, which actually suits him quite well for a long time because it's semi-southern in Baltimore but it's also very connected Mm -hmm. to the northeast and his horizons begin to expand, his connections with um, newspapers, periodicals but especially with other historians at places like Princeton and Columbia and and um, he never has many connections with Harvard, but Yale, um, um, he gets more involved with national historical organizations. He's, he'd been involved with the Southern Historical Association from quite early on and was its president um, in the early 1950s. But um, So, I mean, he's moving in a much bigger pond, uh, really. Um, and... Um, so he begins to attract more attention, and he's people begin to see that he 's a very good critic um, but but also, and as you say could be very severe but but it 's always very constructive i mean he he had a gift for seeing where a manuscript was strong where it was weak but especially what you could do with it in order to fix it mm-hmm. um, and he he had a range I mean he was sensitive to literary style as well as questions of evidence and um, and theoretical um, considerations I mean not that he was that interested in what later called, is called theory I mean he was somewhat impatient with formal philosophy but um, but in the sense of interrogating people's um, political or cultural values or their literary values. He was extraordinarily gifted at that. And and, the word got around. Um, Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so um, sometimes it's historians, quite senior people, like Richard Hofstadter who will send him things to read. Um, Sometimes it's southerners who see him as a sympathetic critic, so James Silver, who publishes this very controversial book called Mississippi, the Closed Society, sends him the manuscript, Woodward the manuscript to read. Um, sometimes it's students of other people, um, several of Hofstadter's students get in contact with Woodward and he reads their stuff. Um, and it it sort of um, – flow. and he, he did – I mean – uh, and he quite liked sort of spotting t- talent – and helping people along. I mean, he he was very. When I was a young scholar, he was he kind of semi adopted me for a bit, um, mm-hmm. and read some things of mine. Um, um, and I, you know, I was one of many people he did this to. So, but I mean, it was it ate up a lot of time for him. Um, but I think he basically, I mean, he enjoyed it. Um, he thought
0: it was one of the services he could render. And he, he, a lot of people came to him. One of the, one of my favorite letters is one of the shortest, and that is, it's a student at McAllister College in Minnesota, yeah. an undergraduate who writes to him, um, and basically says, you know, what makes you tick? What is your philosophy of history? Yeah. And Woodward writes her back, and uh, basically says, yeah, that's a good question. Right. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I right. have one. Um, and it's it's a charming letter, and I think a lot of historians, uh, and not just historians, would have ignored it, maybe.
1: Well, he was pretty good. I mean, he – he, um, although most of his correspondences, as it were, professional, because he had a public profile and because he published in the New York Times or the New York Review books and so on, which had much wider readerships, and because some of his books had a wider readership, um, he did get letters quite often from, as it were, the – the lay reader. is sort of public. Um, and he always, I mean, as far as I can tell, he always replied. Now, sometimes he would reply somewhat, if it was a particularly silly letter, um, uh, <laughs> in a somewhat perfunctory way. Um, but sometimes they've asked him something that would pique his interest, and he would um, reply more extensively. Um, some of these letters are like the one you mentioned, where he's actually, I think, being um, mischievous um, and amusing himself. I mean, both in one sense answering straightforwardly, but it's also a bit of a chore. So, I mean, he, he tries to get make it more interesting for himself by, by right. saying mm-hmm. something a little cleverer. Um, later in his life, he often gets letters... Um, In which he does a little bit of autobiographical because people often write to him and say, oh, tell me a bit about yourself or students are doing papers on him in in their courses and write to him and sort of say basically, you know can you write my paper for me? Um. (laughs) And he usually declines, but sometimes they might ask a more intelligent question and he will um, reply. And that's actually quite valuable uh, because he disliked autobiography. I mean, he always refused to write one. He semi-wrote one once. He gave the Fleming lectures at LSU um, in the early 80s and they're called Thinking Back. And there there is a little bit Mm -hmm. of autobiography in there, but it's mostly an account of the interpretations in his books and the responses of critics and his dialogue with critics and he says almost nothing about his child. I mean, a little bit, and then he says a little bit about his time at Chapel Hill. But but he I mainly fights shy. And he says in a letter somewhere that he just has no taste for autobiography. And mm-hmm. this is to do with his kind of being very reserved and private. Um, yeah. But he would sometimes get these letters, and he would, you know, he throw in a paragraph would say um, someone might write to him and say you won't remember me but I was at high school in Arkansas or whatever um, and he would then do a little autobiographical thing or and and if you piece those together you, you can flesh out his autobiography, the, the more intimate side of it a little more but they're, they're pretty uh, they're not that frequent for any. Really.
0: You mentioned that uh, Woodward visited the Soviet Union, uh, and I think he actually briefly considered staying there in the he early thirties yes how did he avoid uh in the 1950s being tarred as a fellow traveler as a maybe a, a, a you know, troublemaker uh, yeah.
1: well he'd always been rather discreet about that in exactly. fact, even at the time he when he's writing to his friend Glenn Rennie about his trip to the Soviet Union and he, and he tells him some stuff he and but then he says don't tell anyone <laughs> um <laughs> so he's not um and although he's engaged in various left-wing causes um he helps um uh, in some strikes in north carolina and um he's briefly interested in the southern tenant farmers union in arkansas um Um, One thing and another. Um, He's particularly involved. There's a thing called the Angelo Herndon case in in Atlanta where a (laughs) black um, activist is charged for inciting rebellion (laughs) um, (laughs) under an old reconstruction statute, and there's a public protest in Woodward's involved in that. Um, So he'd been active, but I mean not. That publicly active. I mean, he was, and he was, as far as I know, he was never in the Communist Party. I mean, he was certainly friendly with some communists. Mm
0: -hmm. And there Mm -hmm. were
1: letters from various Communist Party members to him. Um, So he was sympathetic. um, But I don't think, I don't know, but I don't think it ever went beyond that. It wouldn't astonish me if it did, but it would astonish me a wee bit um, if it did. Um. Well, why does he invite? Him? Well, he, you know, he served in the military, which usually helps. Um, not if you're Joe McCarthy, it doesn't help. But um, since Eisenhower was, was a traitor too, but um, uh, that helped a bit. Um, I think he was just kept his head down. Um, was a bit lucky. Wasn't important enough, really, to be at that point to be targeted by anyone in particular. Um, And there were were bigger fish, um, I mean, notably um, uh, at Hopkins. um, um, There were various more important figures who who got got attacked by McCarthy and others. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's very interested in that, and I think he was conscious that he was on the margin. I mean, you know, something might have happened. He only... um, Suffered from this once, uh, and he told me, in fact, about this. And, and uh, there's a letter in in the letter in in the collection which speaks to this. He was um, Samuel Elliot Morrison, the great Harvard historian, who was um, also an admiral uh, and um, was. Um, involved – the the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, used to have a board of his sort of historical advisors, which Morrison orchestrated, and he suggested that Woodward be on this board. Um, so Woodward's name goes forward, and um, they don't give it to him because they won't give him a security clearance. Mm. And it's very clear that they dug around a bit. Um, and in particular, I think the thing which got him – that killed this was that he was involved in a minor administrative capacity with the Southern Conference for Human Welfare which was a more radical group in the late 1930s mm. and, and, so. and so there's a letter to Woodward to the to the man, the colonel who sort of has informed him of this this um, failure to be cleared which is a bit distressed sort of saying oh well I'm you know my patriotism is is not to be impugned and so on but um and that's, but that you know, by the standards of of the 1950s, that's you
0: know, yeah, it 's pretty, pretty tame,
1: modest business.
0: It's, I suppose it's, uh, and Woodward. I don't know if you ever appreciated this, but it's, it's sort of ironic that, uh, you know, as he dabbled in you know communism and radical causes early in his life, uh, as as the historical profession radicalizes in the 1960s, uh, Woodward came to be seen as almost the quintessential institution man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the letters which span his very long career uh, really trace his uh, uh, his growing ambivalence with some trends in the professions yes. and uh, But you know for a long time in the 1960s there, uh, there's a spirit I think in his letters where he's sort of like the happy warrior yes. and uh, there, there's one uh, account in particular I think it was the 1969 meeting of the American Historical Association oh, yes. <laughs> Uh, which is a riot um, right. uh, Woodward may well have been alienated by that but he clearly was not he kind of relished this uh, role as almost a, a, a mediator in between uh, sort of the more radical factions that's true uh, led by uh, Herbert Abthacker, and then it was uh, Gene Genovese uh, c- could you just tell us about how Woodward kind of negotiated that uh, th- th- those, th- the politicalization of the profession in the late 1960s
1: well um the situation is that he's the president of the American Historical Association and um in the convention um in the around Christmas 6970 um in New York um there's a radical caucus which basically wants the association to go on record against the Vietnam war um and this is led by Stoughton Lind and, and a number of other people. Um, and so the business meeting, which traditionally the AHA, as in all such associations, is usually a sleepy little event with about five people who mm-hmm. show up looking <laughs> bored. Um, suddenly, hundreds and hundreds of people show up uh, because they they um, nominated an alternative to the, to the sort of establishment nominee for the next president. Uh, which was going to be Lind? I mean, not Lind was the alternative radical proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this tumultuous um, business meeting over which uh, Woodward has to preside, um, and he basically carries the day. He, you know, they, the, the the establishment candidate gets in. They the proposal for the association to go on record against the Vietnam War gets killed off. Um, and in some ways, this was a, as indeed there's a letter to Woodward later on. Um, Basically, saying to him, Well, you seem rather keen on politicizing the the (laughs) historical profession when you were a young man against segregation and one thing and another. And he helped to desegregate the Southern Historical Association in in the 50s um, and late 40s. And he was the program committee chair who first asked the black scholar John Hope Franklin to give a paper at the Southern in Williamsburg in the late 40s. And someone writes to him and says, Well, you know, how come. What you did when you were young was fine, but what these other people wanted to do, and he didn't have a very satisfactory answer, frankly, because I think probably he was a bit inconsistent. But, but he did think, and you know, it's a defensible position that um, historical organizations really shouldn't be in the business of micromanaging political um,
0: positions
1: mm-hmm. and being against this war, for this war, against this against abortion or for abortion or and that's I mean though it's the business of individual historians as citizens to do that um, if they want to but, but it's really not their collective responsibility um, so that was an honest enough position but I think those wars were to his taste because they were about foreign policy, race um, questions of social justice which was the sort of heart and soul of his approach to the world Mm -hmm. and to history Mm -hmm. Um, later in the 80s really when other kinds of issues come up issues of sexual identity um issues of multiculturalism, issues of, of um, theory, post-structuralism, post-modernism and so on. Um, this is a completely different kind of discourse and he's deeply uncomfortable uh, with yeah. it and, mm-hmm. and mostly opposed to it. He wasn't – although he um, in principle was all in favor of women doing better in the profession, he, he wasn't that interested in it and never really got the hang of feminism. Uh, he was very upset by multiculturalism. Um, right, there are a number of letters uh, through Arthur Schlesinger yeah. Jr. And I think he, he it was pretty, this. well, I don't know. I mean, he, there are lines where there were indications he was not, he was homophobic. Um, I mean, I don't think a big deal, but I mean, he, he, he wasn't very comfortable with gay rights and all that. Um, well, it wasn't unusual. No, no. You know. Well, he was, you know, he, he was of his era. He was... Um, sure. Mm-hmm. He was, after all, born in 1908, so... He lived a long time.
0: Yeah. One of the things he's also, you know, besides issues of, uh, you know, multiculturalism especially, uh, he, he seems to have been discomforted by uh, also his trends in the scholarship, especially, uh, as you mentioned, the rise of theory and different kinds of theoretical perspectives. But there's also an interesting letter to James McPherson, I believe it is, where I think McPherson, who was writing Battle Cry of Freedom, you know, one of the – Volumes in the Oxford History, mm-hmm. where he, I think uh, McPherson proposes a volume on social history, yeah. and Woodward basically says, H- uh, "How would you do that? Yes. You know how? Uh, how would you know, show me the table of contents, yeah. for example?" Yes. Uh, was Woodward discomfited by just uh, challenges to sort of the narrative of American and, and other sorts of uh, histories that was posed by these to
1: narrative? Um- I don't think that – I mean he just thought – although when he uh, – Macpherson first proposed this volume um, that there should be – I mean I should say that the Oxford History of the United States says it was originally designed by Hofstadter and Woodward in the late 50s, early 60s uh, were mostly chronological um, – chunks of time, a colonial Mm -hmm. volume and and one on the American Revolution and whatever. Um, But there are also some thematic ones intended. Originally, there was going to be a volume on the intellectual history of the United States, um, Hmm. a volume on the economic history of the United States, a volume, as indeed there is eventually published, a volume on its foreign relations and so on. Um, And of course, all that is being designed uh, before the rise of what was then came to be called The New Social History. So my first says to him, well, shouldn't we have a volume on social history too? And Woodward says, oh, well, yes, maybe that's a good idea. Um, but then he goes off and talks to Edmund Morgan uh, at yeah. Yale, and Morgan basically says you can't do it. It's not. <laughs> um, and the main objection, which I don't actually think is therapy coaching, but it seemed coaching to Morgan and Woodward, was that the raw materials of social history were so disparate. I mean, social history is, mm-hmm. is after all, everything that happens, right? Um, one way or another and the patterns of it. And, and to do a single volume over the whole span of American history which would do justice to anything or everything that could possibly be called social history is basically an impossible narrative task. And that was his main objection. Now, I think it's also true that some of the things that the new social history was interested in he didn't think were terribly important. I mean, his, Mm -hmm. his main imagination as a historian focused on economics and, um, um, and politics. And, um, he was also interested in intellectual history, not so much in a very formal way, but he was interested in literature and, and the sort of, um, imagination of Americans. But, Much beyond that, he tended to lose interest. Um, um, So he said no, and there there never has been a volume on the social history of the United States.
0: Yeah. Serious. Did Woodward ever get a sense that he was in some ways – becoming positioned as almost a conservative within the within the profession. That is somebody who was
1: yes, do that. Um, you know,
0: standing astride
1: yes, these trends. It made him rather uncomfortable. And in particular, his objection to multiculturalism put him in some – some of us might think some dodgy company. I mean he accepted an award from the National –
0: whatever they're called. Um association of scholars or something um, like that. And we reviewed uh, sympathetically uh, Dinesh yes, D'Souza's – that produced a firestorm of criticism
1: <laughs> of him. Um, And he's a bit puzzled, I mean, I, uh, by it all. I mean, because he kind of thinks he's where he always was, uh, which was – although he was n- never that comfortable with the word liberal and indeed that – some he he would deny it. I mean, he would describe himself as a populist or 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 a quasi-Marxist or a radical or and there are but there are other moments in his career where he was willing to call himself a liberal. And I think particularly later in life, um, in fact, not insignificantly, when liberalism is under attack, um, as increasingly mm-hmm. irrelevant in the eighties and nineties, and and he he warms to it because he tended to like being. In a minority dissident position, so he tended to move around the landscape a bit, depending on on as the context um, shifted. But um, but he does have a puzzled letter to somebody, Cushing Strout, I think, um, in the nineties, where he basically says, "Well, you know, I don't seem to have moved, but all these other people seem to." Have moved. <laughs> uh, which, of course, is very story, and you ought to. It's not easy to figure out that that's what's going to happen. But.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Well, we've taken up just about an hour of your time. Um, Just before I let you go, though, uh, what is uh, next on the plate for you?
1: Um, Well, two things. Um, I'm editing with several other people, um, a volume of essays on the present state of American intellectual history. Um, We had a conference at Harvard and another at Cambridge, and that's uh, turning into a book pretty imminently. Um, uh, But uh, but my main task in the next several years, I've signed up to write um, a general intellectual history of the United States from the 17th century onwards um, as a kind of work of synthesis, um, which no one has done for a generation and a half. So it's, um, it's probably time someone did it, and I seem to be foolish enough to try. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I take back the tease I, I I threw your way in the beginning of the interview that you're doing Southern history again because it's I, like although okay, some
1: will pop up now and again in the narrative, I don't oh,
0: okay. like <laughs> the good for them. Uh, yes, they do. Uh, well, Michael O'Brien, I want to thank you uh, again for uh, spending this time with us. Uh, just a great subject. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, once again, uh, this is Dan Kilbride at New Books in American Studies. We've been talking with Michael O'Brien about his new edition of The Letters of C. Van Woodward. And uh, when you go on the interview page at New Books, you will see a little icon with, the, with this book, and it'll link you to Amazon. So throw some royalties uh, Michael's way, and Yale could use the money. Uh, so uh, buy this book. So we'll see you later on in our next interview.